welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode, to mark the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, we're joined by historian Dr. Brian Hanley to discuss the reaction in the Republic of Ireland to the events in Derry on the 30th of January 1972, when British soldiers opened fire on civil rights marchers, killing 14 and injuring several others. The reaction in the South saw walkouts and strikes, a National Day of Mourning, the burning of the British Embassy in Dublin and mass protests around the country. Brian Hanley is the author of The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland, 1968-79, Boiling Volcano, published by Manchester University Press in 2018, which details the effect of the Northern Conflict on the South, responses to Bloody Sunday and other events, mobilisations of support, the experiences of refugees and the debates in the public discourse throughout that period. Brian has spoken to us previously on the podcast to discuss his book The Lost Revolution, the story of the official IRA and the Workers' Party, in episode 13 and uh, giving an account of his own involvement in left activism as a member of the Socialist Workers' Movement in episode 19. So if you haven't listened to those, you'll find them in the podcast feed uh, or on our website. The Irish Left Archive project is an online collection of material related to the Irish Left, available at leftarchive.ie, which aims to provide a freely accessible resource for those interested in the history of Irish Left activism and organisations. We welcome contributions of suitable documents, information, corrections and so on, um, as well as any feedback on the podcast. You can contact us via the website or send us an email at contact at leftarchive.ie. Uh, you'll also find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. Thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast and thanks to Brian for taking the time to talk to us again. We started by asking Brian to outline the immediate reaction in the South to Bloody Sunday. The British ambassador at the time, John Peck, uh, later wrote that the reaction to Bloody Sunday in, in the Republic had, had been unprecedented in his lifetime. He'd never experienced kind of wave of fury and rage that had gripped the, the state in the days after Bloody Sunday. And that really reflects, I think, what was unprecedented mobilization. I mean, the the popular memory and certainly one that will be replayed again and again is the burning of the, the British embassy in Merrion Square. But that happened after three days of protests. And that happened in Dublin, obviously, whereas that doesn't really illustrate the range of protests that took place from Mullingar to Ballinasloe to Ballina to Tralee to Kilkenny, you know, every town, almost every village in the 26 counties saw some form of protest in the days after Bloody Sunday. I mean, I would estimate on the National Day of Mourning, which was the day of the funerals in Derry on the Wednesday, maybe a million people took part in some form of, of protests or um, demonstration on that day. Now, that in in its own way is interesting because it was a national day of mourning, which the government had had called. Mm-hmm. But right from Monday morning, essentially, when the news of what happened in Derry had become very clear, you see local protests everywhere. And, and they're at a level which, you know, I think is unprecedented in terms of the involvement of, of, of people, particularly involvement of people in their workplaces. I mean, the mm-hmm. most common form of, of protest is strike action. In, in the first two days, anyway, after the massacre. Right. How well informed were people at this point? I mean, the coverage in the news media, in the newspapers, obviously 13 people died initially and then one died, I think, three or four months later. But how strong was the grasp of the actual events of that, of the march and the shooting itself at that point in time? I think the fact that the march, firstly, it was a civil rights march against internment it was daytime, television crews were there. That was shown on RTE and UTV and BBC that night. 
and numerous radio bulletins replayed news from Derry from a very early stage. I remember talking to, to a, a fella years ago who was coming back from a, a match in Inchicore, um, St. Pat's, and they were walking home and women were coming out of their houses shouting, telling them something had happened, that people had been massacred in Derry. So very quickly, people are aware there's been a massacre. Nobody yeah. believes the British version in yeah. Southern Ireland. You know, I mean, John Hume describes it as another sharp fill, another Amritsar, another bloody Sunday. You've got RT since, you know, over the last few years, they've released more and more archive footage and, and it's really worth looking at. I mean, they interview people in Derry, including members of, of the official IRA, who are immediately calling for a general strike in protest. So, I mean, the, the idea that you've got to do something is out there. And I think it's important too, because now we know so much about the Ballymurphy massacre and these other events that, that people might wonder why there wasn't that reaction. But Ballymurphy happened mm. in a period of chaos after yeah. the introduction of internment, when there's gun battles raging all over Belfast, when it happens over a period of days. Bloody mm. Sunday happened in front of television cameras. It happened in Derry as well, in a city that was really iconic in terms of, of what people thought about civil rights. Yeah. And also it happens in a context in which people in the South are really interested in the North. I mean, I think, again, number one in the Irish charts at the time of Bloody Sunday is the men behind the wire. And that right. had been number one for several weeks. Yeah. Internment had had a major effect. Thousands of refugees had come South in August 71. You've got hundreds of local committees who are aiding the refugees in various ways. You've also got the trade union movement involved in aiding internees turn, dependents. So, you know, thousands of people were actually donating part of their wages to our internees at this point. The GAA had set up a special fund which had been collecting county by county for Northern Relief. Organisations like the Red Cross and other organisations had Northern Relief funds. So the North was obviously centre stage in many ways. And also people had been mobilised already from October 68, then again, August 69. So it's not coming out of the blue, certainly. Yeah. But Bloody Sunday is different. It does mark a huge escalation. And it's quite clear nobody believes the British view at any level right. in Southern Ireland, and, which is quite different, obviously, from the North, you know, where, where mm. unionists either believe it or, or celebrate it. And in Britain, which is sharply divided. But in Southern Ireland, you don't see anybody expressing publicly the view that maybe the British might be telling the truth. That's that's right. That's interesting. Was was the fact it was a Nicra march as well? Do you think that's put it slightly politically to one side? Perhaps if it had been organised specifically by one or other of the Republican groups per se, do you think that would have been different again? I, well, I think the, uh, that it was a civil rights march, and that yeah. people who were so widely known in the Republic, like John Hume, was mm. a major figure. People yeah. like Bernadette Devlin. Um, were very well-known public figures as well. Um, even people like Ivan Cooper and others were all kind of taken as, um, you know, uh, acceptable spokespeople for, for, for the, the nationalists in the North. Yeah. So I, I think that the very nature of it made people very clear that this was a massacre by yeah. the British Army. And again, if you look at the um, UTV and BBC coverage, particularly the interviews with British officers mm. afterwards, even 50 years on, it's hard not, not to get really angry. You know, yeah. so you can imagine um, there's, a, there's a letter in the Garrett Fitzgerald papers in UCD from a man in Killarney who's writing to Fitzgerald and, and he's writing on the Sunday night about something else. And then he just says, the news, RTE news has just come on. The British are murderous bastards, you know. And, and this is, I think, what the reaction of a huge range of people across 
the Republic was. And what I would say is that the, even in terms of aiding the internees, you had a very broad cross-section of society involved in that, not just from the unions, but also across academics, clergy, different political parties, and, and so on. Again, in, in the Fitzgerald papers, there's a, a Fine Gael supporter from Black Rock writing about how they'd raised £800 in their locale for, for internees, families, and so on. So, so this is broader than simply Republicans or the left, or even people who might consider themselves very nationalist. Yeah. So the the initial response obviously was one of shock and anger and upset. And then that changes a little bit. Well, then what you have is is basically you've got a few kind of token protests at the at the embassy overnight in mm-hmm. Dublin. Um, but in the morning, basically people go to work Monday morning and then walk out. Yeah. So in the Shannon Industrial Estate, you've got walkouts from the factories there and they march uh, around Shannon Airport, essentially, in the Industrial Estate mm. and have um, impromptu rallies. Then Cork, dockers walk out. They um, In Galway, dockers board a British ship and tear down its ensign and raise a tricolour, I think. And then in, in, in the dockers, I think, march into to Cork um, city centre and workers from Ford and Pfizer and CIE and then the women from the Sunbeam factory and, and Gouldings and so on walk out. And you've got a, re- a wave of kind of walkouts from workplaces, some of which then become all day strikes. Others, people walk out for a couple of hours, take part in a march, um, usually very impromptu where they're either addressed by, in Cork, I mean, they're addressed by the Lord Mayor, who's a Labour Lord Mayor, but um, in, in other places they're addressed by shop stewards or by local Republicans mm. um, in Dundalk, for example, thousands walk out of the shoe factories and, uh, and so on. So it's very much industrial action mm. as a form of protest during the day. And in Dublin, then, many of the people who walk out, including then students from Trinity, students from UCD or the Royal College of Surgeons and Bolton Street, along with car assembly workers mm. from Ballyfermot and so on, or people off building sites, they tend to march to Merrion Square because there's a focus there, which is the, the embassy. That doesn't right. exist in most places. So in some places you see in Limerick, for example, they march to the British Rail office because British Rail yeah. still had, had offices you know, right. in, in towns throughout the country. But in Dublin, there is a particular focus and, and the embassy becomes the focus then for a lot of the Dublin protests. But in other parts of the country, from Ballyshannon, as I say, to, to Sligo, to, to um, Tume or wherever, people take strike action, leave work, and demand the government do something. And there's telegrams then coming in all day to the Fianna Fáil government, obviously Jack Lynch is the teacher, mm. demanding a national day of mourning, demanding UN intervention, demanding that the British ambassador be expelled or that the Irish ambassador be withdrawn from right. London and so on. Is there any point at which that seems likely that the Irish ambassador would be withdrawn? Yeah, he is brought back. All and, right, OK, and, sorry. A national day of mourning is declared for the Wednesday. Yeah. Now, again, there's there's a school of thought which sees this as, as the government demobilising the movement, that actually mm. they were able to channel this into kind of an acceptable um, form of protest. Mm. Um, and the fact is that people are calling for it. So you can either say the government caves into popular pressure or the government realises yeah. that this is a way to, to de-escalate the situation. Um, certainly, I think that they're making it up as they go along. I mean, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Patrick Hillary, is then dispatched to the UN to demand action. And, and it's kind of perceived that he's calling for British withdrawal. And, and he makes the kind of, um, he infers that if 
Ireland doesn't get support from the West that they look to the Eastern Bloc for, for support. So, I mean, this is quite a, obviously a dramatic um, situation. But at local level, at local councils, there's emergency meetings on the Monday night. And again, across the board, people are demanding some form of action. Now, where there are either Sinn Féin councillors of, of either official or provisional variety, they're usually demanding support for the IRA or military intervention from the South. And, and that kind of rhetoric is, is very common. I mean, people are demanding that something happen. Mm. Um, but what's really clear is that this has, you know, by, by late Monday, there's maybe 20, 25,000 people at the British Embassy. There's quite determined efforts made to attack it, yep. which are unsuccessful. Um, initially, the official Republicans try and attack it. And then later on, a rally which had come from the GPO led by the provisionals try and attack it as well. But right. it isn't, you know, so they aren't successful. The embassy, the, the Gardaí hold the line essentially on the Monday mm. night, although there's quite a bit of, of fighting. And then you've got all these other protests which involve no confrontations at all because they just, you know, happen almost spontaneously in, in towns across the country. Mm. And then people are waiting to see. Jack Lynch addresses the, uh, he'd have put it the nation, but certainly the state on, on Monday night and, you know, makes clear that the government are taking various steps and calling a national day of mourning and that that day will mean people can take time off work and there'll be a variety of, of ways to express their anger and so on. And that there will be official representation at the funerals in Derry as well. But also then you've got, you've got um, a, a call from him for people not to break the law, for people to maintain discipline and order and so on. Do you think they had any sense at that point, Monday, shading into Tuesday, what the events later in the week would be, that there might be a situation where the embassy would be burnt down? Yeah, I mean, they'd had that sense for a while. Um, I think the, the Gardaí had always said that it was very difficult to, to defend, defend the embassy yeah. because it was in Merrion Square. It was only a few steps up to it. It, it was reinforced, but it certainly wasn't a fortress. And that even in, in, in 1969, the then British ambassador, uh, Gilchrist, I think, had joked in a communication communicate to London that he wouldn't like to be an insurance company with the embassy on his on its books because there'd obviously been a lot of anger in August 69 and the embassy had been attacked then as well. So they're aware of it and the British are very, very aware of it. So, I mean, they start, I think on the Tuesday, start to move out official documents and start to move out embassy staff mm. and so on. But, you know, the demand that the embassy be wrecked is being made by Republicans and others. Um, mm. But as I say, that's not the focus for a lot of the protests because the protest has taken place in, in other parts of the yeah. country where there isn't any target as such. But what you do have is in the displays of black flags, flying the tricolored half mast, the burning of effigies of, of Ted Heath or of, of, of Union Jacks. Mm. And then there is a kind of range of, of more militant attacks on what are, per, you know, are either British targets or perceived to be British. So you go from, you know, British rail offices are attacked Royal British Legion halls, which existed in quite a few places, are also attacked. The Royal Air Force Club in Earlsford Terrace is attacked, and ultimately a lot of these places close. And then the British Airlines BOAC, their offices are attacked. And then you get it down to Thomas Cook's Travel Agency is attacked. Austin Reed's Outfitters is attacked. Um, you know, so anything that could be interpreted as being part of the British connection is attacked. And then you do have, and we can maybe come back to this, threats against 
people, British or English people living in Ireland, threats against businesses that are seen as British and so on, or threats made against ultimately Irish Protestants who are seen as connected to this as well. Mm. And that, that happens during the week too. Right. So you've also mentioned there's a religious aspect to this in terms of the displays and the protests. Well, the on the National Day morning itself, you've got mm. requiem masses in Dublin, in the Pro Cathedral, which is are attended by by Lynch, by Cosgrave, the Fine Gael leader, mm-hmm. I think by the by the Labour leader Brendan Corish. That's officiated by um, McQuaid, you know, Archbishop McQuaid. So it's mm-hmm. the, the biggest names in, in the church. Um, I think Cardinal Conway officiates at the Derry funerals. So you also then have special services in St Patrick's Cathedral, which are attended by the Taunish Darius Gunchilders because he's a member of the Church of Ireland, and also mm-hmm. by 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 others. Um, you've got special services in Presbyterian and Methodist churches across the country. Mm. You've got special services in Dublin and Cork synagogues. And on the day of mourning itself, the, 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 the most common form of local mobilizing is around a requiem mass. That's where people either march from or to. And right. that, you know, I'm sure there's lots of people who don't go to mass, but certainly when you look at what happens on the day of mourning, requiem masses are held right across the state. Mm. And that's where a lot of people march to and from and you know very much there's a sense that you know this is part of the morning that you know the the people are marking this as as a, in in a religious sense and i suppose that can be forgotten when we look back at the fury and the rage mm. and actually also this is a society where the majority of people are still by modern standards mass scores and regarded yeah. as devout and they don't see anything strange in this you know, and, and all these places are packed. I mean, all the reports talk about the Pro Cathedral is full, St. Mm. Patrick's Cathedral is full, but also at a local level, the churches are full and then people um, march off to a, a rally usually and to speeches by a usually a range of local representatives from different political parties or unions or farmers organisations or the GAA and so on. So this is kind of, if you look at the local newspapers, you get a sense of the kind of breadth Mm. of it now that's not to say that there isn't discord notes or that other stuff isn't going on as well but that's on the wednesday now that the Mm. days before the wednesday the monday and tuesday are much more about strike action much more about local marches and rallies and and if places didn't mobilize on the monday they've started to mobilize on the tuesday so on tuesday bus workers in cork go on strike Mm. and they announce that they're going to strike on the wednesday anyway Right. You also then have, say, the, the miners in, in the silver mines in Tipperary who'd been on strike actually the year before in 1971, but they go on strike for two days. Right. And, and they you know, are doing this because of the, the events in Derry. So you've got places that take strike action and just go out and say they're staying out. And in many other places, then they take a half an hour or an hour or two hours. I think in Tralee, there's an hour stoppage where they march to the town centre and then people kneel down and say the rosary. So you've got all these different, you know, kind of forms of protest from again, and, uh, you know, burning British flags or marching to maybe a particular, a war of independence monuments or so on, where again, you've got people like Tom Barry in Cork who come out and address marchers mm. in, 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 in that time. Or on the other hand, you've got, um, announcements by businesses that they'll either close entirely mm. on the Wednesday. So places like Penny's, for example, announced that they're going to close for the day. 
Yeah. Our other then will say, we'll give our, our staff an hour off or two hours off or three hours off. Now, I think in reality, some people never go in, you know, but it's the National Day of Mourning is, is, yeah. is a little bit different in the, the two days that precede it. It might be worth um, mentioning just because people would be familiar with the sort of scale of marches in the contemporary period and bearing in mind a, a sort of 50 year population growth as well. Some of the, you know, the fact that it's occurring in, in pretty much any town of a decent size. Um, you know, and some of the numbers you, you mentioned in your book, you know, you've got 8,000 people marching in Sligo, you've got 6,000 people marching in Wexford, which I think to contemporary minds, is, it's a fairly uh, unheard of scale of, of action. Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, I think they, they talk about in maybe Ballina meetings the size of which hadn't been seen since the days of the Land League. You know, you've right. got um, that you don't even get figures for places like Galway or Limerick or Cork. You know, they talk about Cork on the Monday, groups of workers passing each other by, kind of doing the rounds of, of, of the, the main streets there in Cork. Um, and, and, and so confused that nobody knew where they were going because this is just such a kind of mm. spontaneous action. And, and in Dublin, you know, the Garda figures ultimately for the National Day of Mourning are, are talking about 50,000 in Marion Square. But I certainly think it could have been up to 100,000 at various points. And I suppose the important thing is that those people came from Dublin. Mm. These weren't national mobilizations that centered on Dublin. This mm. was just Dublin because Cork was having its own mobilization. Limerick mm. was having its own mobilization. Um, Kilkenny and Tullamore and, and, and all these places were as well. So you, there's, there's something almost everywhere. And it would, you would, from that, you would, you would essentially assume that almost every person you know, in, in these locales is, 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 is taking part in some form of protest. I think, I mean, there's, there's very vivid descriptions of Mullingar, the crowds marching from the cathedral there, of RD, where they talk about, you know, you've got schoolboys and schoolgirls, you've got secondary school students, you've got Mocker and Affirma, you've got GAA clubs, you've got representatives from the farmers groups, you've got the local trade unions, you've got local businesses. Mm. And I suppose, again, what, what is interesting and this was said to me years later when I kind of tried to make a comparison to a, a, a trade unionist in Waterford between the H-blocks and Bloody Sunday. He said, after Bloody Sunday, the management of Waterford Glass were on those marches. Everyone was. The H-blocks 10 years later are much more, um, you know. Stratified. Yeah, and much more political in many ways and much harder to mobilise people in, in some senses. So this is, is it, it really is um, a huge popular uh expression of sympathy yeah an expression of anger as well um and as the british ambassador recognized you know this kind of fury and rage but it's also very much cross-class cross-community mm. um again people might think why would you even mention this but but it ireland is very aware of religion at the time it's, it's very noticeable that in most towns the church mm. of ireland the presbyterians and methodists where they exist they all hold special ceremonies of remembrance as well. And it, it's quite noted, you know, in Waterford, for example, you've got over 20,000 people very much led by the trade unions there. I think that the ATGWU have a banner, we mourn our, our, our murdered brothers. And actually, I think a couple of the Derry dead had been members of the, the ATGWU. But on the platform, you've got the Catholic bishop, the Anglican bishop, the Presbyterian um, um, representative, the Methodist representative for that region, right across the board, along with the Chambers of Commerce, along with the trade unions, along with a whole range of people. And then right at the end of the rally, um, which is, is disruptive because there's an accident, scaffolding, 
collapses at one point and people are actually injured. There's so many people there. Right. At the end of the rally, a joint party of both official and provisional IRA mm. appear and fire shots in the air. So you've got this kind of juxtaposition of, of, of mainstream society and radicalism, yeah. you know, in a lot of places, but also in a lot of places, very orderly, very restrained, and lots of very anti-British rhetoric. But, you know, um, what are you going to do about that in Tullamore, you know, ultimately? You know, yeah. whereas in Dublin, of course, you have, you do have a target for your anger, ultimately. Do you want to lead us through what happens on the day in Dublin that winds up at the embassy? Yeah, well, I suppose the, once the National Day of Mourning had been declared, you've got um, instructions from the Dublin Council of Trade Unions that they're going to hold a major parade from Parnell Square, led by the Irish Transport Union Band. Workplaces announced that they'll be taking part. And again, you've got the kind of the leadership of the trade union movement are generally pretty careful that they're not calling for a general strike. Mm. And they're kind of making the point that um, certainly the ICTU, that, that what will a general strike do for the people of Derry? Now, again, that means that they don't have to do yeah. anything essentially. Um, but at a local level, I'm sure lots of people stay out all day. Mm. But officially, unions publish, you know, authorization. Our members will assemble in Parnell Square, usually again after a mass. So, for example, the print workers group would have had a, a special mass you mm. know, for them. The Gardaí, you know, have a mass as well. Other other groups of, of, of workers and civil servants, for example, have a mass. Mm. And then we will march. So you've got probably thousands of people who aren't either in unions or just are doing their own thing or school students or whatever are coming in from different from 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 Cabra or Finglas and, and, and Tala and so on into the city. And a lot of them come in by bus because there's a skeleton bus service as well. So the buses aren't completely off. And neither are the trains, but, you know, other people make their own way in, I presume. And all morning then, people are going to the embassy. So some people have, have skipped Parnell Square. So you've got this, again, this, this point of there's, yeah. there's a big guard of presence at the embassy um, all morning. But at one point, female civil servants, there's a description of them kneeling down and saying the rosary and the guardie joining in. And then you've got groups of young people are gathering, watching the embassy, and you've got kind of You'd had, again, significant efforts to attack the embassy on the Tuesday. Gelignite bombs had been thrown at the door and so on. So the door is being held together with bits of bits of wood. I mean, nobody mm. would fix it. All the staff have been moved. The British had asked the government to, to move the army in, and, and the government had essentially said no, although they do, um, as far as I'm aware, um, at Cahalbrua Barracks, troops had been mobilised with riot equipment, but they're not sent anywhere near Merrion Square. Mm. Um, the crowds begin to, to get bigger. You've got Trinity College draped in a huge black banner with 13 on it, with the tricolor flying at half mast. You've got places shut across the city, the, the major stores closed, major, the, the, the big shops and so on shut. And then the marchers begin to make their way across. So they talk about how there's already thousands of people in Merrion Square spilling over into the, the park itself um, as the crowds arrive. And as the crowds arrive, it becomes, the square becomes packed with people. People are on top of each other. You know, there's no, no room to move. The railings are torn down so people can go back into the, the um, park safely. And then it's quite obvious from an early stage that there's going to be a determined effort to, to break the guard alliance and attack the embassy. And that goes on for hours to and froing. Now, again, again it, it, it's relevant because any of us who've ever taken part in protests know that if you've got a miserable day, you yeah. know you're oh god how many people are it's it's uh 
torrential rain all day, which makes no difference. All the reports kind of note how even though the weather is really terrible, thousands of people still turn out everywhere. The people are there standing there in the rain, which again is, you know, when it's common or garden protests, you lose people when the mm. weather's bad. But this is something, something different. And again, there's there's plenty of people who were there on the day who'll have their own accounts and, and you'll see the kind of the different ways it's it's remembered. Um certainly the the guards don't have riot equipment. They're not like the public order unit now, for example. And they're in no position to bat and charge, I think, at that point, even if they wanted, certainly in the midst of the day. Their own accounts stress that we felt to do that would have let lead to loss of life because the crowds were so densely packed. And a lot of the people in the crowds, they say, are not people who are who are aggressive or hostile towards, mm. but certainly a large element were because they wanted to attack the embassy. Um, and ultimately, what begins to happen is that the, the fire brigade make clear that they will not put out fires and so on, and they will not, you know, come into the, the crowd once there's petrol bombs being thrown and so on at the embassy. Mm -hmm. But eventually, and, and people will see the, the, the television footage, people scale the railings along Marion Square and begin to smash the upper windows of, of yeah. the embassy with hatchets and so on. And ultimately, petrol bombs and so on are thrown into it and it begins to take fire. And this takes hours, you know, I mean, it, it, it's nighttime by the time it's ablaze. And people are singing and chanting. And, and again, you know, observers talk about how jovial the mood is in some ways, how, you know, it's not, um, there's, there's somebody writes, you know, the, the British press have talked about this hate-filled mob, but it wasn't like that. It was like a crowd at Crow Park. Mm. They were singing and they were chanting, but actually most people are so far back from what's happening that they're, you know, they're not directly involved in, in, the, in the, the burning anyway. Mm. But, you know, it, it does eventually go on fire. And that's obviously very, very dramatic. Um, and then what happens is, is interesting because a lot of the crowds start to leave, you know, once it's clear that the embassy is ablaze. Um, and obviously probably you need to stand back from it anyway uh, because of the heat. But a large number go to Mount Joy where the, the provisional provisionals are having a rally in mm. support of their prisoners there. And lots of people probably start to go home. The officials then bring people the official Republicans bring people to the British passport office, which was down the street, mm. and they attack that. Sure, yeah. Now, at this point, the guards have been remobilized with reinforcements. They've had three days of, of being under attack at the embassy. So you can really kind of see them take revenge here because now the crowds are smaller. So the Gardaí batting charge, you've got running battles where lots of people are hurt. And that uh, goes into Grafton Street and elsewhere. And, you know, lots of windows are smashed and cars are overturned. But now you've really got a riot between kind of Republicans and probably lots of youngsters versus the guards who are mm. basically taking revenge for having to stand there mm. for the previous three days. Now, there are different accounts from people who argue that, you know, I think in, in Joe Cahill's memoir, he says, you know, we saw the guardie cheering as the embassy went up and, and Bertie Ahern in his memoir says it didn't look like the guards cared. I mean, I think um, I think individual guardie probably felt the same as everybody else, you know, about what had happened. But the British ambassador privately says, you know, the guards stood and fought as long as they could. So I think, you know, the idea that they simply let it happen is an exaggeration. Mm. They certainly, the government certainly didn't do anything like move in troops and so on. And I think that would have been disastrous, you know, in terms of their own 
standing, obviously. But that's the only thing that might have stopped it. And, and they didn't do that. So, yes, you can say they let it happen. But they didn't just let people go in and burn the embassy. That's that's just not true. Yeah. Um, the fire brigade made clear to the Gardaí they're not going to put the fires out. Um, yeah. And and that's partly, again, for their own safety, but also because of their own sympathies. Mm. And then, of course, it gets, you know, I mean, in one account, you know, there's a petrol bomb thrown and hits Hollis Street Hospital. And uh, one one Republican in his memoir said, you know, you had, you had lunatics shouting that it was a British hospital and we should burn it down. You know, so you can see how, how things can can start to, to escalate right, um, yeah. beyond anything planned by anybody. But thankfully, nothing like that happens. But lots of people are injured, you know, mm. uh, both Gardaí and protesters are injured over those days. So it's not entirely this kind of, you know, seamless transition from anger to burning of the embassy. Um, that that happens over a course of time. And you can see how obviously Republicans and others are involved in, in pushing the attack on the embassy. That doesn't just happen spontaneously. Mm. On the other hand, people are quite happy that it's burnt. You know, you see, mm. again, um, public expressions of, 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 you know, sorrow over this by the Taoiseach and so on. And then this, that being contradicted in the doll, but particularly in letters to TDs and so on, and letters to the papers from people saying, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm quite happy to pay through my taxes for, for the damage that was done because it needed to be done. We needed right. to show how, anger, how angry we were. Yeah. And, and that you see quite a bit of that. But in most places, there's nothing to burn, you know, so nothing is burnt at, at the other demonstrations. And, and people simply ultimately, you know, go home on the Wednesday night. But it's quite clear that you've had protest on a level that's not matched since, you know, and, and hadn't been seen really in, in 50 or 60 years before. A lot of the newspapers compared the, you know, they talk about the funeral of Terence McSweeney. Mm. or the funeral of, of the Irish soldiers killed in the Congo in terms of the numbers that are, are, are present. And, and the, 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 the press on the Wednesday morning talks about how this day is really, you know, the nation is in mourning. I mean, again, mm. RTE don't show anything except coverage related to Derry. They, they cover the, live, the, day, the funerals live. They have a day of, well, a day. This is 1972, so, you know, it's a few hours devoted yeah. to um, pro, the, the, the Derry funerals. They show documentaries about the North and about Derry, mm. and the RTE radio all day is about the funerals. And you've got special music and so on played to symbolise really this this day of of, of sorrow. Am I right that I think you mentioned that there were um, staff in RTE as well who would have refused said they would refuse to work on yeah I television mean, or radio that wasn't. Uh, on the subject of Derry as well. Yeah, they, they, the staff made clear that they, they would be broadcasting on the basis that it would only be about mm. the, the, the massacre and there wouldn't be any kind of other programming allowed on the day. So what you have, obviously, is again on the Monday, news agents start to take British newspapers and magazines off their shelves. Ferry Workers at ferry ports refuse to unload British goods. Workers at Dublin Airport refuse to unload British goods or to refuel BOAC aircraft and so on. So again, this is, you know, there's a kind of a, a boycott and there's calls for a wider boycott of British businesses and British goods. And you also then have workers themselves refusing to handle goods from Britain or British newspapers and so on. Now, British newspapers are very, very widely read, as you can imagine, mm. in the state at the time. So initially, there's a few days where, where they're not sold, which is just as well because the British press had taken the British 
government line and the British army line on these things. So I think in a few places, I mean, these, these newspapers and so on are actually burnt, but mm. there is, there is a boycott. And again, the, there is television, there is radio, newspapers are published. So there aren't, you know, the, 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 the printing presses don't stop on mm. the national day of mourning. There aren't power cuts. So ESB workers do take part in strike action and they do take part in the national day of mourning, but they don't stop the power stations and so on either. As I say, there's skeleton train and bus services mm. and so on. So again, there is, um, it's not a complete shutdown of society. Mm. Um, and again, pubs and, you know, shops and so on at a local level mm. are, are open too. But you do have, as I say, that mood of this is, you know, the nearest thing to a, a national shutdown yeah. that, 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 that we've ever seen. I guess politically it would have been possible for the Irish government to put the Irish army on the streets interposing itself between the embassy and the crowds just it would have been politically and in every other sense impossible yeah I think it would have been impossible I mean what you say about RT is the same you know it's like feelings are so high yeah I mean I think it would have been impossible and obviously disastrous because the um you know I suppose if you're in the kind of 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 you're hypothetically thinking through how this is going to escalate even further. The presence of Irish soldiers defending a British embassy in the days after British troops had murdered Irish people would have been unprecedented. And then you would have been asking, would the troops have carried through on whatever orders they were, they were given. Um, And, you know, that's, I think the, the army said that they couldn't go in unless they were allowed to go in with maximum force, that they weren't going to stand there. Right. with the guardie and just be pelted with rocks yeah. now therefore the thing is don't send them in because yeah. are you going to have irish soldiers firing on a crowd in in marion square um you know so that didn't happen um the the embassy was destroyed and really then the next couple of days you do see um a big decline in mobilization because people feel that we've had a national day of mourning and the point has been proved. Um, again, the, the dairy funerals, what's happening in the North is significant. And, and it's a very, you know, nationalist areas are at a standstill. You've got again, rage and anger there, but of course it's a divided society. So there's, there's places that don't experience this and mm. thousands go North for the funerals as well. I mean, this is, again, is, 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 is quite interesting. Mm. I mean, firstly, there's, you know, probably 30 or 40 TDs and government ministers and senators who go to the funerals in Derry. Um, then you also have thousands of ordinary people, particularly if they from Donegal or from Sligo or from Leitrim and so on, who can get to Derry relatively easily. It's, it's you know, it's, it's not an easy place to get to still, and it's even harder back then, but, but thousands do go, you know, actually travel to the funerals in Derry themselves. And then there's also a call for mobilization on the Sunday because the next major civil rights march was going to be in Newry. And that march had also been banned as far as I know. And the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association eventually says people from the South shouldn't come, but nevertheless thousands do. And I think 50,000 people march in Newry on the Sunday. It's the last huge civil rights march or or a march under a civil rights umbrella. And it's estimated upwards of 20,000 of them had come from the South. from as far south as the same in, in County Limerick, Munger County Limerick workers from the cement factory travel up. JA clubs again travel up, trade union branches. You've got people like Noel Brown, because he's a doctor, he goes as a volunteer 
for the, the Knights of Malta, I think, to the Newry March. And there'd been calls for the Irish army to be moved up to the border um, if the British attacked the Newry March, which of course they don't do, you know. And again, mm. it's it's the there's an argument post Bloody Sunday that popular marches were impossible because the British would have shot them off the street. And, and those in favor of them argue, no, actually the British will never be able to do that again. You know, Newry proves that you can actually mobilize, but really mm. by that point, I think the 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 events of Bloody Sunday had made all these these arguments, you know, kind of redundant. Uh, and but certainly you still have that expression of sympathy, and you've got local demonstrations on the Sunday in Dunleary and elsewhere too. I think in Ballina as well. Um, but then it's it starts to slowly dissipate yeah. as it's felt that the the protest has been made. Now, I mean the. Again, taking the longer view, I think this is the view that the, the then Minister for Justice, Desmond O'Malley, years later said the anger burnt itself out in the in the burning of the embassy. And after that, people felt they'd they'd made their point. Um, and whether that is true or not, certainly there is far less opportunity for popular mobilizations. And maybe we can talk about how they they took the form they did, you know, mm. because because that was certainly something that that couldn't really be replicated again yeah. um, in, in, in a similar way. Yeah, because there's no end point. What was the end point? What was after after the day of mourning? Well, a point that that was made to me. And again, it's it's kind of a it's a deflating one if you're thinking in terms of, of this being a great opportunity for I mean, Joe Cahill, again, in his memoir, said if we'd been better organized, we could have taken over the country, you know, from the mm. point of view of, of, of the provisional Republicans. Um, others on the far left say there was a general strike. So if you've got a general strike, I mean, the next thing is, is Soviets, isn't it? You know, uh, if you if you think in those terms. Well, as, as was pointed out to me by, by a cynic, it was a general strike against the British. It was a general strike about what the British army had done. It wasn't a general strike against the Irish state. Yeah. You know, so they're not burning effigies of Jack Lynch, even though there are people demanding Lynch do more. Or maybe Lynch stand aside and be replaced by somebody else. Like maybe you might say, let put Blaney in, he'll mm. be with them. But it's not a general strike against the Irish state. And it's also not, you know, if the Federated Union of Employers say, as they do, that we want people to take part in the National Day of Mourning and that all employers should give their workers time off. Now, yeah. you can say that's, you know, people are going to take the time off anyway. But it means that, you know, that you're not going on strike against your boss on the Wednesday. Your boss is actually a lot of the time as angry as you. You're going on strike with him. Yeah. Now again, it's it's more complicated than that because obviously traditions of militancy, mm. you know, you've got groups of workers who 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 do take two days off, who do you know demand that the union leaderships call a general strike. But you've got lots of workers who are going on strike um, in protest on the Monday or Tuesday, and then again taking part in a national day of mourning. But then. What are they supposed to go on strike for on Thursday and Friday to demand that the Irish government invade? Because that's the only, you know, what are what else are you going to demand that the Irish government do? And and really, so then what if it's a general strike that's aimed at, at overthrowing the Irish government? That's one thing, but it never was that. It was strikes as expressions of anger at British policy and at the British government. And therefore, they could include people from a real cross-section of of political views, including, you know, people would be surprised today at what Fine Gael councillors said mm. or what Labour councillors said or, you know, what 
at, at what, what other you know people from different traditions said because everybody is genuinely angry yeah. the, the impact of bloody sunday is i suppose again 50 years on because so many other terrible things happened it's hard to get into the the mentality of somebody at the time who was genuinely outraged at this expression of raw British military terror mm. against young Irish, you know, or mostly young Irish civilians on yeah. the streets of an Irish city that people had kind of become familiar with over the previous three years in a variety of ways. And again, the 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 likes of Amy McCann and John Hume and, and Ivan Cooper and others and Eddie McAteer. And they're all very different politically, but they were people who the average Southerner would have known of course, yeah. instinctively from television and radio mm. coverage. And obviously Bernadette Devlin's not from Derry, but she's at the mm. March and she's very well known. So it's, it's the separation, the gap hasn't widened by that point. Right. So it's, it's very personal, I think, for people. And you get a sense of that from the, the local newspapers and from the, the various events that people put on. Over the next couple of months, there's lots of fundraising. Mm. And people again raise money through their union branches or through their workplaces or through clubs and committees and so on for the dairy relief funds. And that goes everywhere. You know, you can, you can have people raising money for the IRA and then you have people in the next town raising money for John Hume or Ivan Cooper. And, and there's often, you know, it's not quite clear if there's much difference between the, the committees or what people yeah. are doing. But it does become clearer, obviously, as, as the months go on. So I don't want to play down how significant the, the mobilization is. Mm. But I would temper the view that if you hear there's a general strike after Bloody Sunday, that that meant that the state was on the verge of collapse. Mm. Um, and I think the, the, the establishment of political figures and so on within the government are very aware of, of the precariousness of, of what's going on and, 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 and the dangers. But at the same time, they're also very aware that this really isn't aimed at them most of the time, you know, um, and, and that the... The anger is anger at Britain, essentially, and the unionists and people who are seen as as connected to them. Just on, on the on the matter of strikes, I mean, you, you mentioned this one instance of um, of workers getting unpaid suspensions for taking the time to go to the funeral and so on. So would there have been much of a sort of an employer's backlash occurring as well then? Or was that was that pretty much isolated incidents, do you think? It seems to have been relatively isolated. But here, I suppose you've got the the penny pinching classic Irish Gombean, I think in, <laughs> in Drumcondra, I think it was, it was, there's about 28 women take time off for the National Day of Mourning and they come back to work on the Thursday. I think it's, is it Irish Waterproof Limited? I'm not sure, but their, their boss then, um, you know, wants to dock their pay. And that wasn't the general picture, I think, because there was these kind of agreements that that mm-hmm. wouldn't happen. And, and there's letters to TDs and so on. And I don't know how it's, it's ultimately resolved i suppose the the interesting thing for a modern i'm nearly frightened to say 21st century audience is that going on strike would have been a natural response for a lot of people Um, in the 1960s the republic of ireland had the highest strike rates in western europe and people often find that maybe a bit surprising because there's no mass communist party there's no left-wing led trade union movement it's Mm. Every documentary, every book tells you that this is a very conservative, authoritarian, you know, orderly society. And it is that, but it's also one in which there was a real tradition of trade union militancy, particularly of 
of kind of recognition of picket lines. And mm. um, at the 1970 ICTU conference, I think it's Dennis Larkin, ironically, you know, says of the Workers' Union of Ireland, says, you know, that we don't see this situation anywhere else in Europe. We don't see it in Britain and we don't see it in Northern Ireland. But he says, in this society, if one man, and he's obviously it's the language of the time, one man mm. takes a bit of paper and writes something on it and stands in front of a factory, nobody will go in. Now, mm. he's, he's a trade union leader who's complaining about this because the unions are bedeviled by the fact that almost every dispute can lead to a strike because workers simply will not cross picket lines. Mm. And in 1969, you'd had a major dispute by by tradesmen, again, the language of the time, the maintenance workers dispute, where hundreds of thousands of people had been ultimately out of work because other workers wouldn't cross those picket lines and factories and industry ground to a halt. And throughout the 1960s, there's this recurring question of what do we do about this sacrosanct nature of the picket line in, in Southern Ireland? Now, a lot of that comes from Larkinism and comes from 1913 and the traditions of militancy. And again, people from all kinds of political backgrounds can, you know, on the one hand, maybe be quite conservative in a lot of ways, but also then think that you just don't cross picket lines. Yeah. So people were very used to strikes. They mm. happen all the time. Unofficial strikes also happened all the time. And it takes decades of the unions and the employers and all the rest of it trying to come up with ways to, to fix this. And ultimately, the, the recession of the 1980s fixes it because mm. thousands of unionized workers lose their jobs and they don't get them back. Um, but in the 1970s, if you were angry and you walked out you know, over something and a couple of you walked out, your workmates would not pass your picket line. So I think that's, it's quite a natural way of responding to Derry in many ways. And also then, of course, people are identified so much by their workplaces. So when you, you look at coverage of the day of mourning across the, the country, people are identified by the hospital workers in Balmaslow or workers from Tyna Mines or, you know, um, I can't remember where Albatross fertilizers were, New Ross or wherever, you know, you've got, that's, that's who they're identified with by their unions and by, by their workplaces. And it's very much a kind of natural identification in a way that it mightn't be where now union membership is much more restricted in a lot of ways to the public sector you know not not exclusively obviously but but you've got you know something like 60 percent of the workforce were in unions in the early 70s and and most of that was you know or a lot of it was private sector most mm -hmm. private sector workers were were unionized or nearly most so that strike action is is a natural way to respond in the early 70s in a way that maybe mightn't have been the case 30 years later but again responses to the conflict are very different 30 years later and of course it was a performative thing as well from what you're saying there to a certain degree not all strikes obviously but some of them are you know in that kind of framing prior to Bloody Sunday would have had a slightly performative aspect to them perhaps as well you know somebody making a stand and then I've made my stand and I move on yeah, I mean, again, now a lot of the unofficial strikes um, ultimately led to all kinds of mm. of trouble. But yes, I mean, they could be over very quickly if, yeah. if the thing could be could be resolved. And and what you do see see obviously on the Monday and Tuesday after Bloody Sunday is that maybe in some places people walk out for a couple of hours, but then they go back, or, or that there's no repercussions for that anyway because it's yeah. understood that this is an extraordinary moment. You know, yeah. it's a different thing if if the management then say, well, we're going to sack all the people who walked out because then the unions themselves have to respond as well the other thing is that the, the union leaders 
and, and most of them were men like Matt Merrigan or, or Mickey Mullen and so on, mm. were very much national figures and would have been consulted about a whole range of things in the way that most union leaders aren't today. Yeah. So they'd have been on RTE talking about everything, not just about union business. And they were, as I say, major personalities. Now, one other factor, of course, is that um, Matt Merrigan's union, the ATGWU, was a British-based union, and most of its membership were in the North, and most of its membership in the North, or a lot of them would have been Protestants. Mm. Um, so the ATGWU comes under a lot of pressure in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday, and there's basically attempts by the Irish Transport Union and others to poach members from them. And you've also got people calling for, for Irish workers to leave British Union, you know, mm. so um, because you've got smaller unions like the print unions and so on or others that are based in, in London or Manchester or Newcastle engineering mm. unions too. So there's some pressure put on those unions to give up and they don't, you know, that, that pressure dissipates. And mm. some of them are more militant. I mean, Merrigan's union is more militant anyway. Mm. these questions than a lot of Irish-based unions. But certainly people are aware that you've got a very closely connected society to Britain. I mean, one thing that struck me, which again is different, is that one, obviously there were British Legion halls, you know, in different parts of the country, mm. the Royal Air Force Club in, in Dublin. But also on the first day, on the Monday, when car workers from um, the Long Mile Road and from Ballyfermot and so on marched, to the embassy, they hand in a, a letter of protest, which notes that we contain within our number a large body of ex-British servicemen who are disgusted by this uniform body of killers. So these are Dublin workers who are saying, actually, quite a few of us have been in the British Army. Right. Similarly, like you've got a, um, a CIE tractor driver in Waterford who's a veteran of the, the Italian campaign, British Army veteran, Sherwood, ex-Sherwood Forrester, actually, mm -hmm. who goes to Downing Street and hands back his medals. So at the other level of society, then you've got Lord Kilbracken in Leitrim, you know, kind of the remnants of, of the Anglo-Irish tendency, who's a decorated veteran of, of the Royal Air Force, I think, or Fleet Air Arm. And he hands these medals back as well. And he says the British Army's version of this are lies and I'm taking out Irish citizenship. So you've got, you know, quite a lot of, of Irish men of a certain age who'd served in the British military, either in the Second World War, hmm or post. And there wasn't a lot of societal disapproval of that until the 1970s either. And yeah. they don't usually think of it as something they should be worried about. So they're quite, you know, they're protesting mm. along with everybody else. Now it's, it's different maybe in, in some other places. Um, mm. You've also then got what even the British Embassy describes as kind of the Anglo-Irish or the remnants of the ascendancy. And some mm. of them make clear they're outraged as well. But then in other cases, you've got threats against them or firebomb attacks on particular businesses or buildings. And then you also have the, the wider, the, the South's minority, who, you know, in Kildare and Wexford and so on, there are threats against Protestants, not, not against yeah. the British, but against Protestants. Yeah. You've got people who see them as, as connected to this because they're, you know, they're not, they're not Irish Catholics. And it's made clear very quickly that that's wrong. You know, so again, a broad range of people mm. are condemning attacks on Protestants, are condemning threats against English people living in the South. But mm. it does happen. And you then have the kind of um, the wider question, I suppose, of, of what form does the, do the protests take now? There's a kind of realisation that, you know, in 1972, 
I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's pretty dramatic. Maybe 80% of, of trade was still with the United Kingdom. Mm. And that therefore, yes, if we're going to boycott the British, um, basically we're, we're going to cut ourselves off economically. Right. The Republic hadn't joined the EC yet. Um, mm. It's on the verge of doing it. And they're going to have a referendum in May. And yeah. you begin to see very, you know, from, from again, from business and finance magazine, all our trade is with Britain. How can we, how can we cut that off? Then from also the union, you know, Tralee Trades Council, which had organized the protests in that town, then they also say, but, you know, a general boycott of British goods w- would work against our members because, you know, a lot of what we're dealing with is produce that's being sent to Britain or mm. sold to Britain and so on. So how do you economically carry on this, this boycott? If, 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 unless it's, it means war, what else do you do? And the kind of, the myriad of interconnections then between the Irish people living in Britain, between the, the amount of, of British businesses that are based in Ireland or doing business with Ireland mm. and, and all these other things starts to come out in, in kind of discussion afterwards and in the kind of fears that start to get expressed about where is this going to lead. And I'm presuming the, the Irish ambassador to uh, Britain was sent back fairly sharpish once things had calmed down a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not exactly sure when he goes back, but he does. I mean, the, the, the Irish government, you've got this kind of kind of bewildering on the one hand, when Jack Lynch rings Ted Heath on the Sunday night, mm. he apologises for, for ringing at such a late hour and so on. And he, you know, is very, um, you know, certainly very kind of um, obsequious, obsequious yeah, in the way that he deals yeah. with, with Heath. But... Mm. In public, then, the Irish government obviously takes a hard line on the international stage. Mm. And, 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 you know, you've got people again like O'Malley. When there's a question in, in Leinster House about, you know, well, could anything have been done to stop the burning of the embassy? And he says, well, we could have done what other governments in this part of the world do, which is, you know, shoot people down. But we've got more respect for human life than they do. You know, so again, yeah. you know, again, it's quite clear that the government are. They're angry mm. at what the British have done, but the British aren't angry. I mean, the British reaction to Bloody Sunday, the official reaction, obviously the longer term reaction, the, the mainstream reaction in Britain is that our boys don't tell lies, you know, and yeah. that something did happen. And, yeah. you know, it's, you know, up till relatively recently, until the, the Savile inquiry and so on, that still would have been quite often the view in large sections of British society. Mm-hmm. So there's completely, if you were Irish in Britain in 1972 and you're angry about Bloody Sunday, you actually often meet very hostile responses. Yeah. So again, the South is, is, is very different. There's, there's nobody publicly, um, you know, saying the British were, were telling the truth. Mm. There might be a handful of people who think that in private. Um, and I think, again, there's, you know, you hear there have been large numbers of Trinity students at the, the burning of the embassy and so on. It was very close to Trinity. And, and, but then you hear, you know, that at the, the dining hall among the academics, there have been major rows with some people had been defending the British again and so on and you still have the relics of kind of the Southern Unionist tradition maybe yeah. um, but but very few and even the you know it's what what you do have is a fear for stability how long yeah. can these protests go on um, are we going to be burning something every week and ultimately most of the public are are not going to do that you know and, and that's Again, it begs the question about why Bloody Sunday provokes this response and other things don't, even things that had happened before it again, you know. Mm. So 
Um, the cameras, as you said, it, yeah, it has to be the fact it was filmed in full sight of the world. Yes, but also that it came at a time when, for most Southern opinion, the North was still quite clear-cut yeah. and sympathy yeah. was still generally with nationalists. Yeah. And therefore, there was no complicating factors, factors on the day mm. that there would be, you know, shortly after. You have a quote from a, a woman with young children um, saying, we fear so much for them that we sometimes feel the North should be left alone to get on with its own destruction, which is quite a, a, <laughs> a strong statement, but um, illustrates that kind of pulling back, I suppose, from... Um, that letter is quite interesting. Now, again, it's, it's, it's quite kind of specific in that it comes from very much a kind of middle class uh, Fox woman. Fox Rock, isn't Fox it? Fox Rock, who, yeah. who, you know, is writing to say, look, we're, this is terrible. But two or three years ago, our country was very prosperous and peaceful. And now where is it all, all going to end up? And she does use that, you know, maybe sometimes we feel the North should be left to get on with its own destruction. And that view does become more widespread. I, I should say, though, that, you know, after Bloody Sunday in Fox Rock, because I think the British ambassador's private residence is, is in Sandyford or somewhere, there's a demonstration by a couple of hundred women who are described in the press as Fox Rock housewives, you know, who've got like black and tans get out and all this, mm-hmm. you know. So again, this is, this, the mood cuts across classes, but certainly again, if you were concerned about stability, you were concerned about the spread of violence, um, you do begin to wonder at what point is this going to stop? Because are we going to intervene? No, we're not. Um, yeah. Then what do we do? Do we support the IRA? So, you know, within a few weeks, um, the provisional uh, Republicans have a big rally at the GPO, 15, 20,000 people. And, and, and Sean McStephon, the IRA chief of staff, says, you know, for the first time, I think he says for the first time since 1169, the nation is on the march, mm. uni- unified, and, and we are on the march to victory. And they think that's going to be what's going to happen. But right after the burning of the embassy, if you look at, again, the press reaction, I mean, people say it had to happen or it was inevitable it was going to happen. But you've got in the Irish press, which is the most nationalist daily newspaper, the one that's most closely associated with, with Fianna Fáil saying, you know, the burning of the embassy was bad enough. But what happened afterwards was out- outrageous. The attacks on Gardaí and so on. He says, you know, you had spokesmen from the official IRA calling for, for, for attacks on the police. What do these people want? The northern minority will not be aided by disunity in our state. They will not be aided, aided by the downfall of our government. And ultimately, you begin to see it stressed all the time. We do have a legitimate government here. We do have a legitimate state, whatever about the north. And any trouble down here only makes things worse for the minority. You've got to get behind the government. So that's what the Fianna Fáil press mm-hmm. are saying and the the rest of the media are basically saying it as well, although the, there's there's differences in their coverage. I mean, again, given its its uh, its historic image as the unionist newspaper, the the Irish Times has really detailed northern coverage mm-hmm. and very you know very complex coverage in many ways because you got people like uh, Nell McCafferty writing from Derry. Um, you've got um, you know Dick Walsh should have been a sympathizer of the officials and so on, which means they, they have letters from Longkesh by Des O'Hagan, regular yeah. feature you've got. Um, but on the ground, they've got extensive Northern coverage and it's often quite, you know, gives a voice to the, to different brands of Republicanism. Um, the independent traditional Fine Gael paper gives that kind of view, which is the anger initially, but then also, obviously now we need to maintain order and stability. Mm-hmm. Attacks on the Gardaí are absolutely outrageous. Attacks on property 
and on business and so on are outrageous. We've got to, you know, stand back. But there's a kind of variety of other media too, like Hibernia magazine and so on. That's that's very interesting because within a couple of months they're saying, you know, initially this movement was completely independent of anybody. Mm. The pace was set on the streets. Mm. And then by May and June, they're, they're saying the militants are, are now more isolated than they've ever been. You know, the mood has turned against them mm-hmm. very quickly. So it's it's interesting how that happens. And of course, it, it never happens for some people. I mean, some people are radicalized by Bloody Sunday and they join yeah. the IRA and, and, and they, they become involved in, 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 in the, the armed struggle and so on. Um, others within a very short period of time have decided that there is no solution and mm-hmm. that the best thing we can do is concentrate on our own affairs and lots of people are, are in between. You make a really interesting point in another chapter in Boiling, in The Boiling Volcano about how it's possible for a sort of sentiment to arise where people are intensely loyal, fiercely loyal to the Republic of Ireland as is, are functionally in some respects anti-British when events like this occur. You even see it and you, you recant how in Fine Gael and Labour you hear voices which are really ferociously anti-British at that time and in other events throughout the 1970s, and yet who want absolutely nothing to do with what are perceived as subversives or indeed with a broader Republican project for unity because it is seen, as you've been outlining there, to destabilise the state and that this is the threat. So you have these three different strands all coexisting within a single thing. Do you want to maybe expand upon that as how that then inflects the events in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I think the it's it's realised. I think much later on, maybe by Republicans, that the the Southern state by the nineteen seventies had been in existence, obviously, for over fifty years, and most people basically accepted it. Um, and it it they saw it as Ireland. You know, it, it's very annoying sometimes when people use Ireland as a shorthand for the twenty six counties and, mm. and they and so on. But that is what most people thought in terms of, and they felt sorry for nationalists in the North, and they felt an instinctive sympathy with them because the entire ideology of the state up till the 1960s anyway, had always said that this was, you know, the fourth green field. And, and I suppose what's interesting is that you can't blame revisionist historians and so on for what people think in 1972, because the vast majority of Southerners had grown up in an atmosphere in which they'd been taught a very traditional nationalist account of history, yeah. in which you know the trouble had started in 1169, and in which there'd been a justified struggle for independence, and most people identified with that struggle for independence. Now there there are exceptions. I mean, there's the survival of of people who would have been unionists in other ways, maybe in the border counties and so on. But but certainly most people are broadly mm. nationalists. They look back with pride on the origins of the state, mm. and there is a sense then that we've got to do something for our people in the north and. That, you know, that leads to all kinds of solidarity between 69 and 72 on a very, very widespread level. And at the same time, you can always see worries that at the same time, it's going to cause trouble in the South. It's going to lead to more violence. It's going to lead to more crime. It's going to lead to a different kind of level of, of aggression that we're not used to. And that, that even a century ago, when refugees came South in 1922, you saw people in Dublin expressing hostility towards them you know so it's it's not just a partitionist mentality over decades it's actually you know a longer term fear of of this kind of different society mm. um, which had for historic reasons emerged in, in the north so i think people are really angry and they at various stages can therefore rhetorically support 
um, all kinds of action. And you see, you know, you see in the winter of 1971, new local newspapers predicting that this will be the last Christmas before the border is gotten rid of, mm. that what the IRA are doing is very drastic, but really it's been forced on them. And that ultimately, hopefully we'll be looking at a united Ireland and peace in the near future. And I think by the summer of 1972, when it seems it looks like this isn't going to happen, particularly after the collapse of the various ceasefires and the big provisional IRA ceasefire in the summer, when that collapses and there's a drastic re-escalation of violence, people really then begin to fear that this isn't going to end very soon. And the unionists who we've kind of, we regard as you know, th these people are the problem and they're bigots and so on, but actually they look like they're going to do things as well. And you begin to have the first, you'd had bombings mm. in six, 1969 and 71 and 72 or 71 as well, but mainly aimed at property, but you begin to have, have, have more bombings in the winter. Um, you begin to sense that this, this, this fear of, it has already been expressed by people like Cardinal Conway, and that's where the term um, boiling volcano comes from, you yeah. know, that this can spill over very easily. You can have a very peaceful, stable society, and then suddenly it's overturned. And mm. now it is terrible for people in the North who were bearing the brunt of this violence on an unprecedented scale by 1972, mm. not just bombings and shootings, but also just the, the level of, of harassment and of yep. fear and so on, to think that people in the South were worried about one bombing or one shooting. Mm -hmm. But in a society that's basically had stability for 50 years, although it has a very intense memory of the Civil War and so on, and at an official level, the memory of the Civil War was very, it loomed very, very large. For mm -hmm. people. Um, you know, by, by 19, the end of 1972, if you heard of a bank raid in Belfast in, in which shots were fired, you, you wouldn't think twice about it. But if it's a bank raided leak slip, you know, in which shots are fired, people, people are worried. Um, nobody, I won't say they don't care, but certainly the deaths of policemen in Northern Ireland does not affect most people viscerally. Again, except, you know, some of them actually came from the, the Republic initially, but, but most people don't, don't have any um, either identification with or simply for the RUC. But the shooting of a Garda makes a massive difference in a society that's been largely at peace. Yeah. Um, the disruption of, of when riots begin to happen in, in border towns and so on, um, you know, where they once would have been, certainly after Bloody Sunday, might have been seen as, as an expression of anger that maybe got out of hand, then it becomes, well, this is trouble and who's causing this trouble? And, and you know, can we blame it all on the Northerners or maybe they're given they're given a bad example to some of our young people? And you see, this being expressed sometimes by the same people who'd expressed militant anti-British sentiment. So the distrust of the British never goes away. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's um, at a popular level, people don't forgive them for Bloody Sunday, you know, and they don't think that, you know, the, the paratroopers um, ever became good guys. Um, and at a popular level, there's not, there's not a great deal of sympathy or understanding ever for, for the unionists, certainly at a, maybe an academic elite level that, that changes, but, Certainly, as the North gets worse and as people begin to feel, yeah, it's going to spread down here. And really, there's no way of, of, of controlling that in any way. Um, mm. That, I think, alienates people. And then the, the difficult question is, how much of that is due to 
Republicans because the biggest factor in demobilization and why the Fianna Fáil government is able to move as quickly as they do to bring in more and more draconian powers and censorship and so on is that people are alienated by the IRA. They are fearful of the IRA because by the summer of 1972, the particularly car bombings had a huge Bloody effect. Friday. Yeah. And, and not just that, actually. I mean, things like Claudie, things like the Abercorn, yeah. uh, the Newry Custom Station, mm. but a whole series of them. I mean, this is unprecedented in Irish history. I mean, people, again, Republicans make the fair point that the War of Independence was very violent and terrible things happened. Yeah, but people didn't see it like that. They do have a very naive view of Michael Collins and Liam Lynch and Carl Brewer. And, and what they can say is, that, well, they didn't do that. You know, and they didn't, you know, because it simply wasn't a tactic that was used then. And there's, I think the Republican movement, you know, doesn't recognize at the time the impact their tactics are having on what they would have presumed was this large Southern support base. And again, you can see it in papers like the Kerryman, which had been basically, you know, a lot of the, the rhetoric is as long as the IRA fight in the North, their cause yeah. is just, it begins to be, no, no, we, we can't identify with it. This is something, this is something, um, and again, the, the effect of Aldershot can't be discounted either. Um, people might be surprised at the way that deflates Southern um, perceptions of, of kind of moral mm. superiority over the British. Interesting. Because it happens so quickly after Bloody Sunday. Yeah. Uh, because it does kill five women. Cleaners. Yeah. yeah. Clean that has people. a huge, imp- I mean, that really, really is seen, you know, by a lot of people as, as having robbed us of the right to criticize the British. Now, mm. a lot of people might say that that's, you know, that's wrong, or there's other ways of saying that. And of course, famously, Anne Harris in Hibernia, you know, says this is, you know, this is the Southern middle class's hypocrisy, you know, yes. that, they're, that they're, you know, lecturing the IRA yeah. for its attempt to hit back at, at, she says, the technological savages of, of the, the Paris. Mm. But ultimately, people do feel, no, no, that was wrong. That isn't the way you do it. And it has a really deflating effect, I think, on, on Southern anger. So there's, there's expected to be big ructions at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh and at the Labour Party conference about the North. Mm. And ultimately, there really isn't because they, they rally around the party leaderships who are saying, now, yes, the Northern minority must have justice, but that isn't going to be served by disruption down here. It's not going to be served by, um, you know, an armed campaign, which, you know, our people don't want. If we want a united Ireland got to stand in in case of Fianna Fáil stand behind the government now and in the case of Labour they begin to pull back and say you know you've got to this isn't the message of the Labour movement it's got to you know be aware that this war is going to get worse the civil war won't 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 do us any good and nearly 50 years on you can unpick all these different arguments see how cynical opportunists they might be but ultimately they work because you can see a perceptible decline in mobilisation and also even in popular interest in the North over the next year. Do you think there's a reality that Bloody Sunday, in a sense, showed the limitations of what the Republic of Ireland could do in any given context, at any given time, about what happened inside the six counties? That, in other words, here was an event, as you say, captured on film in front of the cameras of the world, where the British army essentially murdered 13, 14 people. And... Yet, all the Irish state could do was call a day of mourning and pull its ambassador back from London for a number of 
number of days or weeks or whatever it was. And then you have a situation where there's a sort of very soft economic boycott for a week or two. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well, obviously, governments can always do more. Um, you know, you could, mm. you could argue that the, the Lynch government um, was primarily concerned about stability and we're looking at the long-term future of, of EEC membership and so on, which was kind of predicated on, on them going into that with, with Britain as well. Now, again, Britain, it's yeah. interesting that, you know, there's overwhelming support for EEC membership when, when the referendum takes place that, that may. 80%. Um, which doesn't, doesn't tell you everything about support for, for Republicans and so on either, because actually it, it was more mm. complicated than that. And I think one thing veering off slightly is that people from all political traditions could be involved at varying levels in support for the IRA. Um, you know, particularly for the provisional IRA as, as it turns out in the longer run. And it wouldn't show up in opinion polls or necessarily show up in elections either. And the IRA too were well aware of that. And some of their leadership were well aware of the limits of what you could do in the South and why you needed to keep, you know, why they should keep things as stable as possible, you know, um, mm. because that gave you much yeah. more leeway in terms of what people in the South would, would allow you to do in the North. And then there were people in the IRA leadership who didn't understand that at all, really. And, and particularly as the 70s wore on, um, didn't realize that things that actually might have looked quite spectacular in Republican legend had counterproductive effects in Southern society. Well, of course, the government could have done more. I mean, they could have demanded at the United Nations that the Security Council, which included Britain, obviously, you know, support, you know, you know the, that they could have gone to the, the Russians and demanded support for British withdrawal. They didn't want British withdrawal. Um, they, mm. you know, in, in the current context, we're getting to a point where, you know, you can really talk about um, the prospects for United Ireland, I think, but the Irish government of any political tradition would have been terrified by the prospect of an immediate British withdrawal or, you know, rem remember again that, I mean, from the provisional IRA's point of view, they thought they were on the verge of of victory because the British government were talking directly to them. I mean, you can imagine how, mm. how Lynch and Co. feel when John McStephon's flown to London, you know. Um, yeah. John McStephon thinks yeah. he's in the Michael Collins position, you know, yeah. um, but that was a very different historical situation. But nevertheless, the Irish government are going, the British government could pull out. And then what do we do? Um, we've, we're going to have a very angry, you know, population of Northern nationalists who feel we've let them down for 50 years and we're going to have, you know, a very angry uh, unionist population who say they're going to fight and who have the potential to fight at least to some extent. So no Irish government wanted a British withdrawal. And that's really what they, the only thing they could have pushed for, you know, or the introduction of a UN peacekeeping yeah. force again, which, which is talked about yeah. and which, you know, um, I suppose we forget that, you know, the, the Cold War was taking place and Britain is a nuclear power and Britain's a member of NATO and is a close ally of the United States. So who are Ireland, who is the Republic going to get to back up this demand for the peacekeeping forces, the Norwegians or the Swedes or whoever you see? It's, it's, it can seem, you know, when you talk about it, you can dismiss it in your own mind. That's not the way people think at the time. I mean, if you're in the IRA at the time, you obviously think you're going to win. You know, this is, you know, the Brits have, have, have invited us for talks. They're, this is, they've left the rest of their empire, they're gonna leave here as well. Of course, it seems natural to you. If you were 
at the, the cold face of this, you're not paying any attention to what the South thinks anyway. Um, you're only concerned with the people who are going to hope, hopefully help you. Um, and then if you're getting on with your life in the South, the North seems to get further and further away with occasional eruptions where it comes close to home again. But I suppose the, the broader context is that you we forget, I suppose, that things were getting bad again in the Republic. You'd had the 60s, which, you know, wasn't great for everyone, but seemed to be a period of increasing prosperity and increasing hope. The North blows up. It's got nothing to do with the economy or anything else. But by 1971, 1972, as recession begins to bite again, unemployment begins to rise. It's coinciding with increasing violence in the North. And people begin to say, well, things were going grand until all that happened. And now this is dragging us back. And do we really need this on top of everything else? Um, and that's reiterated then by politicians who say, we've got to spend this much money on the guard now. We've got to spend this much money on the army. Big companies used to come here, but they're afraid to come here now. Tourists are afraid to come here now. And that can seem very, again, selfish, I suppose, you know, to a person who had to live the conflict mm. in the North. But in the context of the South, it means, all right, well, this society is never going to improve. We're always going to be, you know, sending our young abroad. We're always going to be scrabbling around for progress while we're saddled with this thing. So let's just, mm. hopefully it gets fixed, you know, and... And as long as it keeps, you know, directly away from, from our doorstep, um, that again can seem like a very selfish way of looking at it. It depends again on, on the individuals. And I think emotionally people are always, you know, sympathetic to a certain extent to what's happening, but it becomes far more complex in the years after Bloody Sunday. And it really happened at a time when, when it still seemed pretty clear cut and still pretty yeah. easy to say what side you were on. And that becomes more difficult over the coming decades where you still have a, a very active minority who will always be interested in the North um, and always try to mobilize around it. And at various stages that's possible. And then you have a group on the other side who are very, very hostile to anything to do with even consideration of the North. And most people really in between. And that that era is gone now. You know, so you are talking about history. You, you can't talk about these things now in a way that for huge numbers of people has any kind of visceral impact at all because they just don't remember them. And that's natural enough. But it does mean that I suppose that all those questions can can seem much more simple than really they were at the time. Does this have an effect more broadly on the left, do you think, as well? Well, I think it, it, it depends on you know what you mean by the left of course i mean the 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 outliers at the a time broad definition <laughs> has to got be. a very divided labor party with a very strong nationalist section within it who are also often the most socially conservative mm. not exclusively you've got somebody like david thornley who, who sticks to his guns you know um to use that phrase who, who right up through the 70s mm. continues to, to criticize the the kind of withdrawal from Republican identification with the North, but ultimately Labour go into coalition with Fine Gael in 1973, and, and then defence of the state becomes very central to their ethos, and that's driven by, by people like Cruz O'Brien, who again, you know, in 1970, Conor Cruz O'Brien's been physically attacked in the Dáil for opposing an attempt by Fianna Fáil to introduce internment, you know, mm. and by 1974, he's flirting with the idea of, of ever more 
repressive powers in Southern state. Um, yeah. You were saying you but, wanted to at one point to maybe stop letters to the papers, the newspapers. Yeah, kind of most notorious. In 1976, he, he said publicly that he was in an interview in the New Yorker or something that he'd been noting the kind of rhetoric in letters to the Irish press, you know, and, and talking about how you might prosecute the editors of these papers if they allowed those kind of letters to be published. Um, wow. And that's a kind of more notorious example of, of a later um, mm. element to censorship. I would say that that the key elements of Section 31 and all that were all in place in 1972. It was yeah. Jack Lynch's government that sacked the RTE authority, mm. you know, that that November, and and had introduced pretty draconian security legislation, and had said, you know, if the IRA want to fight, we give them a fight because Fianna Fáil were pretty confident if they went to a general election on mm. a security platform, they would they would win. And that reflects, too, that things were becoming very polarized. There was still a lot of sympathy for Republicans and there was still a lot of mobilization around the issue of civil liberties. But the government was now clear that, you know, things had gone far enough, that the security of the state, that the stability of the state what was paramount. And they're supported that in that all the way by newspapers like the Irish Press, you know, who, yeah. who, who support all this legislation who say we have a legitimate government here. You know, the minority minority's cause is not served by disruption in the South. It is not served by armed activity in the South. But to go back to your question on, on the left, um, a section of the left, very small section, becomes the, the British and Irish Communist Organization, are already saying that the problem here is the South and its claim on the North and refusal to accept that Protestant resistance to United Ireland is real and that the Unionists actually have as much right to self-determination as the Nationalists do. And initially, that's a voice in the wilderness. It seems pretty esoteric. But as the 70s go on, you get people within the official Republican movement embracing aspects of this. You get people like, I think Conor Cruz O'Brien probably takes you know, some of these ideas himself. In fact, in 1972, Gareth Fitzgerald writes to a member of the, the BNICO and, and says, you know, I actually find that I agree with a lot of what you're saying, strangely enough, about this idea of, you know, that, that two nations. The, South, the South's nationalism is, yeah, is a problem. I don't go the whole way with the two nations. I don't think there is two nations in Ireland. But, um, you know, I do find elements of your ideas, you know, quite convincing. And that's, you know, I think interesting. Mm. On the other hand, though, you've obviously got a wider element on the far left who see the North as key, who believe bloody, you know, the aftermath of Bloody Sunday was a missed opportunity that had they been bigger, had they been more influential, they could have turned this in you know, a more revolutionary direction. And you've got groups who basically throughout the 1970s, the, the, the North is the key to the Irish revolution. How do you, you know, how do you mobilize around issues around repression, opposition to, you know, state clampdowns and civil liberties and so on. And some of them are very important because they're the only people who are doing that, you know, who are mm. more campaigning against the death penalty or are campaigning against miscarriages yeah. of justice and so on. And repression. But ultimately, they still believe that the North somehow has that ability to mobilize the mass of the South in a revolutionary way against the Southern state. And I suppose that's based very much on believing that the South was still dominated by Britain, was still some form of neo-colony and so on. Then you've got other people within that kind of saying, I think it's the Independent Socialist Party, a split from the IRSP, you know, we were saying in 1977 that, you know, Southern workers grow, grew up in a partitioned society they see their problems as coming from the society they live in. They don't think their, you know, their problems are tied up with the North. And I think it's, again, another 
it's sometimes you know they might be very small organizations but they because they're trying to influence the working class they're they're mm. getting feedback obviously and i think it's another one of the organizations talking about how you know there's that split in working class consciousness in dublin you know of of yeah. people who not only are unsympathetic you know who, who don't care about the north but are actively unsympathetic and there is a tradition within the you know, working class in the South as well of people who are very cynical about nationalism, you know, who might have been angry about Bloody Sunday because it's outrageous, but who also just don't believe that all this, because again, you, you can, you've got to remember that people up till the 1960s did grow up in an education system and so on that, that pushed very much a, a nationalist idea, you know, of a Catholic mm. nationalist Ireland and so on. And you've got people who react against that, you know, and who, yeah. might be a militant trade unionist and who might believe that the rest of this stuff is a load of crap you know the christian brothers beat it into me but i don't agree with it anymore and, and while that's a cliche um and it can be used to kind of explain you know abdication from maybe these questions it is a reality mm. it's, it's not you know it isn't only dublin four or or you know um the irish times um and again the irish times is, is is pretty engaged with the North in the 1970s. So, you know, whatever. It isn't just Dublin Ford, Sunday Independent, ultimately that, that, you know, has this view that it's not really our problem. Lots of ordinary people think that too. And I suppose I use, this is, it's an unfair example, but you know, you're shaped by how you grow up. In 1971, we lived um, near Drogheda and my father worked in, in the cement factory up there. And years later, I found out that him and his workmates every week were donating from their wages to the internees dependence funds. And I didn't know that at the time. Obviously I didn't know it at the time. Um, but I only found yeah. out years later. Now, within a decade, by by the early 80s, I can remember the view of him and his contemporaries was very much if they could cut that place off and float it away, it really has nothing to do with us. It's terrible. It's a horrible situation, but really they're all as bad as each other. So mm. you can either go down the route of believing censorship and revisionism and so on created this atmosphere in the south and people really didn't know what was going on and that's true to an extent but we read the irish press and we read the sunday world and we didn't read the works of conor cruz o'brien and so on you know mm -hmm. so there's other things going on as well and that's why you see this kind of com complex reaction to things like you know the birmingham bombs or to le mans or to even you know, the assassination of, of Mountbatten and Warren Point on the same day. And I think like last year, there was a bit of a, you know, there was there was a media kind of furore about that when, when a Sinn Féin TD compared Warren Point to kill Michael. And I mean, the thing about that is that lots of people wouldn't have had a major problem with Warren Point. It wasn't that they were sympathetic mm. to British soldiers, but they would see the Mountbatten assassination, particularly because children and so on were killed as outrageous. Okay, yeah. And that's not an un... Uh, you know, it's in a very explainable point of view, you know, yeah, it's a very understandable point of view. Point of view. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's one yeah. that yeah. that doesn't fit into neat kind of categories of yeah. the free state or, or the revisionist or the provo or the sneaking regarder. People could be yeah. sneaking regarders when they heard, you know, about the Brighton bomb and Thatcher, mm. but they would be appalled by the Harrods bomb, you know, mm. which was around the same time. And, and, you know, so when we get into kind of our, our shouting matches about this, which is inevitable, but, but we, we're robbing people of the context in which they lived and of the reality of most people's yeah. lives, which, which can be a struggle. 
and which therefore mm. the, the kind of idea that you know you know I, i've seen this term used on twitter free state privilege you know give me a break mm. you know give us give us a break mm. now that the 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 women in the Magdalen laundries had free state privilege and should have been doing more yeah. about the north, you know, because now, now, now that's right. unfair from me throwing it back, but that's exactly where we're going with those arguments because that's not how people live their lives. Um, there was a privileged minority, obviously, in Southern Ireland, and bizarrely, you know, you read Kieran Conway's book, Southern Provisionals, and some of those people were involved with the IRA as well. So, you know, there's mm. there's 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 layers and layers to this and we the more we yeah. we learn about it and talk about it the better because mm. otherwise then we are kind of reduced to just shouting slogans at each other about which side let us down or who's you know telling lies about these things i mean we can only go by what we we know about them um and certainly i think bloody sunday the reaction to it was unprecedented the anger was real but a lot of that was based on on emotion and then didn't outlast the next few months, certainly didn't outlast the next few years. Listen, thanks a million, Brian. Thanks very much, Angus. Thanks very much, Kieran. Bye-bye. See you.